Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 and verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now we are not going to try to cover that entire passage this morning. We're going to break it down into two sections. Next week is our uh, missions conference, Global Impact Week. So the week after that, we're going to come back and finish up Galatians chapter 5, 13 through 26. This morning, we're going to focus on the theme of freedom. And I want to begin with, uh, with a little poll. When you were a child, did you go trick-or-treating? Anybody go trick-or-treating as a kid? It's a great night, isn't it? It's a wonderful night. Um, you know, my sister and I went out. She's four years older than me, and we went out, and our objective was to collect absolutely as much candy as we could possibly collect. And we didn't take out those little tiny uh, pumpkin things that were plastic. We t- took out paper bags from the grocery store, and we might have an extra one mom and dad carry. We tried to absolutely fill those things up. Now, my second poll is, um, when you got home, did your parents allow you to eat all the candy you collected? Anybody? Okay, got a couple. For most of us, we didn't get to eat all the candy that we collected. Mean, mean bad parents. We had few good parents. But now that you're an adult, you're free to do whatever you want, right? Your kid comes home with candy. You can take their candy, actually. You can, you can, you can make them go to extra houses. Oh, mom, dad, I'm tired. I don't care. We're getting five more houses in. Come on. And if they offer you a second handful, you dig in and dig deep, okay? And then you get home and you just pull out the stuff you like. Oh, you wouldn't like that. It's chocolate. And just take it, right? You can do that. And then you can sit up all night and you can eat all the candy you want, right? Because you're free, right? Isn't that what freedom is? Getting to do absolutely anything that you want to do. Is that freedom? No, it's not freedom. Probably be sick, wouldn't you? It would feel like freedom after the first candy bar or two, but by the end of the evening, you say, ah, this is punishment. That's not freedom. Freedom in that setting might be eating a piece or two and having enough self-control to say, that's enough. Or having the freedom to actually enjoy sharing some with your children who collected the candy, right? (laughs) That might be freedom. I remember one time uh, my sister and I were kids 
grade school. She may have been junior high. I'm not sure. She's four years older, as I said. And we got to go to the State Fair of, of um, New York. It's a huge State Fair. Uh, first time we went, it was awesome. We walked in, and we were really, really hungry. So we went first to the food section, and we ate hot dogs. We were really hungry. And then we had uh, cotton candy. You know, we ate cotton candy, and we had soft drinks, and we drank all the soft drinks, and then they had candy they're handing out. We ate all the candy, and that was awesome. We're just chowing out. Oh, this is great. And then we walk up, and there were the rides. And my sister loved rides. You know, she loved the rides. And I had been too small for some of these rides, but now I was tall enough I could go on the ride. She goes, okay, come on. Let's go on this ride. And so we climb on, and they put you in a cage. Okay. You know, it's, it's one of these round cylinder things like this, and you're in a cage, and, but I'm thinking, this is awesome. Now I, I have freedom because I'm tall enough I can go on any of these rides with my sister. We're in these cages together, and we're strapped in like this, and, and then the thing starts going, and I'm like, oh, this is really cool. It's really cool. And you know, you feel that little twingling, you know, this thing in your stomach, you're like, this, this is exciting. And then you go for a little while longer, you go... This kind of hurts. This is not this is exciting, you know. And then they get it going fast enough that the floor drops out. You ever ride on that one? The floor drops out, so you're just pinned by the centrifugal force, and it's spinning around and around and around. And I'm tasting cotton candy, and I'm tasting hot dogs, and I'm thinking, "Oh God, please!" You know. And every time it's going around like this, I'm trying to catch the guy's eye, like, "Stop, stop." You know, and I'm trying to send him that signal through just brainwaves, stop, set me free. You know, it felt like freedom, but now I feel like I'm a slave to this thing. Please let me out. And finally, it slows down, it slows down, you know, and the floor comes back up. And I remember just stumbling out, falling on the ground, literally laying on my back, looking up and seeing stars and just feeling so sick. And my sister's like, let's go. You know, where's the next ride? And I never, ever, ever in my life have gotten on one of those rides again. And I never will. You know, roller coasters, okay, but these ones that go like this. Oh, gosh, even the thought of it. I'm thinking, that's death. I thought it sounded like a great idea. I thought it sounded like freedom. Now I'm old enough. Now I'm tall enough. Now I can go on any ride I want. I can eat anything I want. But in the end, it didn't turn out so well. As we hit Galatians 5 and 6, Paul's going to talk about freedom. And so often we have a misconception of freedom. We think freedom means getting to do anything that you want to do. But that's not freedom. Freedom is knowing what is best. Choosing what is best. And having joy in that choice. Freedom is the ability and the desire to do do what you know is truly good. And finding joy and freedom in the expression of that good. Freedom is the main theme that's going to carry us through Galatians 5 and 6. We've dealt with a lot of doctrine. Now Paul's going to get very practical. and He's going to say, this is how justification by faith and sanctification by faith work out in your daily lives. And he's going to pick up on this theme of freedom. Remember, he began in chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ Set us free, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Some people think this is basically the theme verse for the whole book. It's about freedom. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then he takes one of his typical tangents and he talks about slavery to the law. The law is slavery. The law is a manifestation of the flesh. Don't be enslaved again. To the law. And then he picks up freedom again as a theme in verse 13. He says, For you are called to freedom, brethren. 
Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are called to freedom. Freedom is a really common theme for Paul in all of his writings. A variety of freedoms that we experience because we're in Christ. The first is that we're free from death. That is, we're free from sin's penalty. The wages of sin is death. But we are free from that because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Keep your place in Galatians. Let me read to you. You don't need to turn. Let me just read to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are free because we're victorious in Jesus Christ. He paid it all. That's the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't pay anything. Jesus paid it all. And so if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the debt of your sin is permanently removed and you have eternal life. If you have never experienced that freedom in Christ, let me encourage you this morning that you go before God the Father and say, thank you for freeing me from the penalty of my sin. That's the foundation really of all that Paul has been talking about and all that we're going to talk about as we apply faith to the Christian life on a day-to-day basis. Second freedom that we experience is that we are free from law. Now, Paul was laying his doctrinal foundation. We went back and we looked at all the biblical covenants. We looked at the Abrahamic promises that were given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to Abraham's seed, and we saw that those were fulfilled in Christ. But added alongside that was the Mosaic law. But the Mosaic law couldn't give us life. It was designed for Israel to restrain sin until the one who would receive the promises would come, that is Jesus Christ. It was designed not just to restrain sin, but to guide us to Christ, to show us that apart from the indwelling, empowering spirit, we really can't reach the righteous standard of God. And now we know that we're free from Law. We don't have to live under this system any longer since Christ has set it aside and he's brought us the new covenant. To go back and to live under law is to live in slavery because we're living only according to what we can accomplish in our lives. That's it. Paul expresses it in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. If you want to turn to Romans 7 with me, keep your place there in Galatians chapter 5. Romans 7, verse 4. Paul says, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, that is, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Because we have been joined with Christ, and Christ fulfilled all of the requirements of the law, therefore he had the right to set aside the law, and no longer be obligated to the law, Since we're in Christ, we are no longer obligated to the law. So now we can bear fruit for God, not just bear fruit for ourselves. We are free from the law as a system under which we should live. We are also free from the law then as the law is something that provokes the power of sin in our lives. As Paul's going to say, the law itself is not bad. It's a reflection of the righteousness of God in, in a legal form. But because of our sin nature, when we see the law, it provokes something within us. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. 
What shall we say then? Is the law itself sin? May it never be, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, coveting is bad, but Paul didn't realize that he was a coveter and that it was a bad thing. And then he hears the law and he realizes, oh, coveting is bad. That is sin. But it goes on. Verse 8, he says, now sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The commandment's not the bad thing. The problem is is within me. You know, I hear these commandments, thou shalt not covet, and I realize, yeah, coveting is bad. Oh, you know what? And there are a lot of things that I don't have that other people have that I really want, and I need that, and I need that, and I need that, and I need that, and all of a sudden, sin is provoked as a result of the law. Now, because we have the indwelling spirit, I can hear the law, and I can say, yes, that is true, and I can want to fulfill it, and I can have the power to fulfill it. So the law operates entirely differently now in my life, and we'll talk about that a lot more next week. What Paul is really talking about, though, now in Galatians 5 is not so much what we are free from, but what we are actually free to do. Paul is talking about the freedom to love. Turn back to Galatians again, chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't misunderstand what freedom means. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another." Apparently, the the particular manifestation of the flesh in the church in Galatia was conflict. These people are coming at each other all the time. And why are they doing so? Well, because the law has crept back in and it has provoked sin within them. And now there's conflict in the body of Christ in Galatia. And Paul says, no, you're missing the point. Freedom doesn't mean the opportunity to go out and sin. Freedom doesn't mean free to do anything you want to do. Freedom means having the power and the ability to actually love other people. To give of yourself and expect nothing in return. That's the freedom that you've experienced. And notice what he says here. It is actually the whole law that is fulfilled in one word in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's quotational Leviticus chapter 19. He says, this sums up really the whole law. The Pharisees in Paul's day had broken it down into over 600 individual commandments, most of them negatives, most of them thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And Paul and Jesus and even other teachers of the day said, well, we can synthesize all of this. Let's just put it in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Keep your place here again and look back in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the entire law and the entire prophets. This sums up absolutely everything. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 13. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 13 verse 8. Romans 13.8, owe nothing to anyone except this. This is your obligation, to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Okay, let's look at the law for a minute and see how it fulfills the law. Okay? Ten Commandments are a summary or a synthesis of the entire law. And you can break down the Ten Commandments into just two categories. Love for God and love for neighbor. Four, the first four apply to love for God. The next six, love for neighbor. You shall have no, no other gods. If I have other gods, I'm not loving God. Because God is the only true God and he is the only God worthy of my worship and he is a jealous God. And so if I am worshiping other gods, I'm wounding the one true God. It hurts him. That's not loving to God. If I make graven images, if I worship idols, it's, it's absolute foolishness because he's a living God and this is a stone or a piece of metal and it breaks God's heart. The one who is also personal, like myself, would be worshiping a stone when I could worship the person of God. That's not loving to God. When I take his name in vain, that is, I treat God casually, when he actually is one who is transcendent, I'm diminishing his significance in my eyes or in the eyes of those around me. That is not loving to God. I'm not loving God well. Remember the Sabbath. When I don't remember the Sabbath, and it doesn't have to be Friday night to Saturday or Sunday, it means I am setting aside time to remind myself that God is great and God is good and God is in control of my life and I'm worshiping him. And when I don't set aside that time to really focus my attention on God, I'm not loving God because he's worthy of my heart. He's worthy of my attention. Loving neighbor is shown in a variety of ways. Honoring father and mother is love for a neighbor. Okay? Not myself. I'm, I'm giving love. I'm giving respect to father and mother. Don't murder. It's obviously not very loving. Don't, don't do that. No adultery. No stealing. Murder, adultery, stealing. All those things are taking from somebody else. I'm not giving to the other person. I'm not loving the other person. I'm taking from the other person for my own benefit. No lying. Again, I'm taking from the other No coveting. I may not be taking, but I sure want to take. All these things are taking, 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 not giving. So Paul, Jesus, even other rabbis of the day said, you want to sum up the entire law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty easy, right? (sighs) Yeah, not so much. Um, Look at Matthew chapter 5. Greatest preacher who's ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus Christ in his uh, amazing sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This is how he defines love. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, 
love your enemies. I want you to stop for a second here and, and see if you can visually picture an enemy. Okay? It may help us kind of really grasp how heavy this is, what he's saying. You heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I said, you love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, the ones who are unkind and say all kinds of evil things about you and are mean to you. They lie about you. Uh, They take from you and they take and they take and they take. Picture those people. Pray for those people so that you may be sons of your father in heaven who is your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Uh, To be a son of God means to be like God. If you would like to be like God, God doesn't just love those who love him back. God sends his son upon the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends rain upon the righteous and upon the unrighteous. He loves even his enemies. As a matter of fact, when you were an enemy and when you were alienated from God and you were were dead in your transgressions and sins, at that point in time was when Jesus Christ reached out to you and said, I love you, enemy. Would you like to be like God? Well, this this is what love is. I mean, real love. This is real love. Not just doing something nice for somebody and hoping for something in return. He goes on. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not, do not even the tax collectors, okay, the, the lowlifes in society, don't they even do the same? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles, those Gentiles dogs, they can do that. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You are to be like God. How does he love? Well, he's not looking to produce a natural love in you. He's looking to produce a love in you that you cannot produce in yourself. That's supernatural. People look in and they see you loving your enemies and serving your enemies and praying for your enemies and not holding unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart towards your enemies. That's that's love. That's a genuine demonstration of love of being free in Christ. I'm not a slave to, having rece- to receive something back from others. Christ illustrated this as well. Luke chapter 10. Jesus didn't just lay out propositions. He was such a great teacher. He came up with amazing illustrations that really caught the attention of his listeners in those days. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. A lawyer, an an expert in the law, one who knew all 613 commandments and knew all the negatives and the positives and knew how a person could be righteous by keeping all these. A lawyer stood up, put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? Another great teaching technique. He says, it's a great question. What do you think? doesn't even answer it this time. I like that. Um, I like to do that with our staff. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Go ahead. That's a great answer. Go ahead. Do that and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? We've kind of heard that theme a few times, haven't we, as we've gone through Galatians. Wishing to justify himself. In other words, he's trying to narrow down the definition of neighbor so it's not too difficult to accomplish. He's trying to narrow down the definition of neighbor to something that he can actually do 
in his own strength. So who exactly is my neighbor wanting to prove that he's already doing this thing? So Jesus said, well, let me give you an illustration who your neighbor is. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Very common. This is a very dangerous route. Very steep route, very narrow. There were robbers all along the way. Very common thing. The guy can imagine seeing this happen. And by chance, a priest was going down. The priest, he, he's, he's the pinnacle. If you want to think of a loving person in the society in that day, think of the priest. Right? That's one who loves. He's the most spiritual among us. The priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he just passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, well, if the priest wouldn't do it, and he's most loving, next loving in our culture, that'd be the Levite. The Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the lowlife in our culture, he was on a journey. He came upon him. When he saw him, he felt compassion. And he was moved from his compassion to do something. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast. So he had to walk the rest of the journey himself. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him himself. He, he took, physically took care of this guy. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, now you take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Now, expert in the law, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or this low-life Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Well, grumble, grumble. He said to him, I guess the one who showed mercy toward him. (laughs) Jesus said, well, just go out and do the same. There you go. End of story. That's it. That's all you've got to do if you want to demonstrate real love. Just go and do the same. You don't see anything in the story about the Samaritan expecting payment back in return, do you? Do you want to know if you are actually loving someone? When you express love or kindness through an act of service or through a word, do you expect anything back in return? If you expect nothing back in return, you're just giving because Christ has given you so much. That's love. Now conjure up all those enemies again. Wow. It's impossible, isn't it? Man, at least really, really hard. Who's your neighbor? It's interesting, Jesus kind of flips the whole discussion on its head. The man comes in and he's trying to narrow down the scope of who is my neighbor. And literally a neighbor is one who is near. And at the end of the story, what Jesus says is, the issue is not who is my neighbor, who do I have to fulfill this obligation to? The issue is, to whom can I be a neighbor? Okay, to whom can I be a neighbor? Who, who might possibly even cross my path that would come near to me so that I could reach out and express love to them? To whom can I be a neighbor? So if you're married, who's your neighbor? Well, your spouse, that's the one who's closest. But Paul takes this principle and he applies it to marriage and he says, husbands, love your wives so they'll give something back to you. <laughs> no. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and offered himself up for her. And he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. What is it that Christ expects back from the church? Can we pay him back? 
Now remember, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. In our sins and in our separation, Jesus reached out and he loved and he loved and he gave and he gave and he gave. Even paying the penalty for those who would reject him, he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave. He says, husbands, in your neighborhood, the ones who are closest, this is the way I want you to reflect the love of Christ. Give, expecting nothing in return. Just give, expecting nothing in return. That's it. What is it, really, that we can give back in light of all that Christ has given to us? You know, I have this, uh, for years I've had this image in my mind of um, my refrigerator door. You know, on on my refrigerator door, if you come to my house, uh, I have artwork. And um, it's hard to tell what some of that artwork is, right? (laughs) What's that? Uh, And I have to ask, and then I realize it's something very complex. But I just couldn't see it in all the lines. But now I do. I see it. And, you know, I love that artwork. And if you came and you said, let me give you some real artwork, I'm like, I I don't want, this is the artwork I want. Because my kids made this for me out of an act of love. And so I proudly put it on my refrigerator. And when it comes down, I save it. it. I stick it in a pile. I keep it because it was an act of love to me. And so I value it because of their heart toward me. Now, I imagine that in heaven, there's this cosmic refrigerator door, right? It's huge. It's huge. And we do these little paltry acts of love, and we do them because we love Jesus so much. And he takes that, and he sticks it up onto his cosmic refrigerator door, and the angels go, what is that exactly? So is this an act of love from one of my children? And You know, it's not much, people. What we offer back to the Lord, it's not much. But he's grateful because we do it out of love. And so as we're examining our hearts, am I really loving? The question that we ask is, did I expect something in return? Was I demanding something in return? Maybe I wasn't even conscious of it, but when it doesn't come, then I know because I'm resentful and I don't want to give any longer. That's not biblical love. Freedom is being able to give and to give and to give and not expect in return because I am complete in Jesus Christ. That's biblical freedom. Let me give you a definition. Freedom is, in a sense, good slavery. It's a paradox. All the greatest things in the Christian life, really, are paradoxes. Freedom is good slavery. Paul says at the beginning of the book of Galatians, he says, I am a slave of Christ. We have translated bondservant. Remember we walked through all that bondservant? But really, it's slave. He's talking about a slave. He says, I'm a slave of Christ. And in slavery to Christ, I have found freedom. Slavery seems to be a narrowing of life and, and options, but no, it's an expanding. It stretches me, it expands me, it allows me to have the power of Christ to give and to give and to give and to not need to take and take and take. So he says, I'm a slave of Christ. And then if you look at his letters to the various churches, some of whom treated him well and some didn't treat him well, he says, I'm, I am your slave. I'm your slave. If freedom is paradoxically good slavery. It's not bad slavery, being enslaved to Satan and sin and temptation and our flesh, but being enslaved to Jesus Christ because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
give you a little bit longer definition. Freedom is this. Freedom is the ability and desire to do what is truly good. To act or think or speak or feel without a twinge of guilt or regret. To live with confidence and joy. You know those times you think that doing something is freedom and you step out and you act and at the end you go, ah, now I'm carrying some guilt. Freedom is to think or speak or act or feel and at the end of which I have peace and I have joy and I have confidence in the Lord. That's true freedom. Let me give you another illustration from um, our family family illustration. Now, this is actually an illustration about my wife. And every time I use illustrations about my wife, people go, did you ask permission? I asked permission. Okay. Um, you know, the ones that are really positive toward uh, my wife or my family, I don't usually feel like I need to ask permission. I asked permission for this one. Um, when she was in high school, her, her car broke down. She had to get a new car, uh, at least a new to you car. Right. And, um, wasn't the first car that she had purchased. She'd gone through the process before with her dad. They'd gone and looked at a car and done some research and stuff. And in her family, that was the appropriate process. Her dad was a retired Navy guy, senior chief. You asked his input on these things. He was also uh, the uh, manager for the fleet dealership for a, a big, really large Chevrolet dealership in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So he knew a couple things about cars. So if you want to buy a new car, you would go and ask his permission, ask his input, that kind of thing. Well, she thought, you know, I've done this before. It's time for me to take a little initiative. So she got out the paper. She's searching. She finds a, a, a Plymouth Champ. Yeah, that's what that is. That's a Plymouth Champ. Ironically named. Champ. <laughs> Champ. And she goes, this one looks good. Hey, Dad, what do you think about this? Okay, she gets his input. Dad, what do you think about this, this Champ? And he says, you know, why, why, don't we, why don't we go look at it together? Let me, let me go with you. Well, she thought... You know, I, I can look at it by myself now. I've, I know, I'm, I'm free, I'm, you know, I'm an adult, I can drive, my license, all that kind of stuff. So she went down, she looked at the car by herself, it was awesome, she was maroon. Huh? A maroon champ. How can you go wrong? Right? So she takes all of her savings, her $600, she buys her maroon champ and brings it home. Dad, look at my maroon champ. He goes, you didn't wait for me? No, Dad, I can do it on my own, I did it. Told you to wait for me. Okay, well, she drives her maroon champ. It's a jewel. For one month, it is a jewel. And then it breaks, and it never, ever runs again, ever. All of her money was gone. For a moment, a brief window of time, a month, she felt really, really free. And then she felt very enslaved as she was asking her sister for rides and her mom for rides. And as a high school student, not having a car, you know how that feels. Man, that's slavery, right? Can't go anywhere on your own. What feels like freedom, a lot of times we step into it and we act independently from God's authority in our life. And what happens? It comes back and it enslaves us. Freedom is living under the authority of Jesus Christ because he is a good master. Freedom is that ability, the actual strength and the desire To do what we know God wants us to do. And as we step out in faith and we do what he wants us to do, we don't have to receive anything back in return. That is freedom. And that that is a genuine change of our character. So, why is it so difficult to see this deep, deep change in our character? To live in freedom. 
Would you look back in Galatians with me, chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please, This is not Christian cynicism, people. This is reality. It's not called spiritual warfare for no reason. You are in constant battle within. And you will be in constant battle until the day you see Jesus Christ and he crushes this thing called flesh. You receive a resurrection body that no longer has flesh. But right now there is this disposition to say, no, I can do it on my own. I can buy that car on my own. I can do whatever on my own. It's always tugging at you. And no matter how mature you become in Jesus Christ, there will always be that tension. It's always going to be there. That's not cynicism, that's reality. And what we're going to talk about next week is, who are we now as new creatures in Christ? Who have the Spirit and can listen to the Spirit and can actually experience freedom in Jesus Christ, but still have the flesh. How do we crucify the flesh day by day, moment by moment, and live in freedom in Christ? We can, and we can grow, and we can mature, and we can see the flesh have less power in our lives, but we would be foolish to say that we can eradicate it. It's always there. It's always knocking at the door. There's always this temptation to say, I can do it on my own. And as soon as we do, we're slaves again. And so what we're going to do next week, not next week, next week is Global Impact Week, so you've got a week off just to think about this, okay? So I'm going to give you an assignment. In between uh, this Sunday, two Sundays from now, I want you to read Galatians 5, 13 through 26, okay, and read it a bunch. And I want you to read Romans 6 through 8, okay, and as you're going through those passages, I want you just to ask God's Spirit to bring illumination to your mind, What does it mean to walk according to or follow the leadership of the Spirit? And how do I do that practically on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis? And then I want you to ask the Spirit to do a little bit of examination in your own heart. When you choose to love, are you expecting something in return? Are you demanding something in return? And ask the Lord to begin to purify us so that we can walk in freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We have hope forever, that we won't battle the flesh, and we have hope right now because your spirit dwells in us, that your spirit can be in control of us, and the flesh can be put to the side. I pray, Father, though, that we would not drop our guard and and believe that the flesh will somehow go away. I pray, Father, during these next two weeks that we would learn directly from your Spirit, that your Spirit would speak to us and teach us to crucify the flesh, to walk according to the Spirit, and to experience the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, the freedom to give and to love and to serve and not demand in return. Father, we thank you that you gave us an example for this in Jesus Christ, who gave to us in spite of the fact that we were sinful and enemies, And yet he purchased us out of the marketplace of slavery and brought us into the glorious freedom of relationship with you. It's in Christ's precious and powerful name we pray. 
Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.